This is Paul Nobles from eatform.com. I am sitting here with April Blackford. April, do you want to say hi to everyone? Hi, everyone. I always wonder if like people go, he uses that same intro. I just don't think, I can't, I'm not like witty or I can't like come up with this stuff right off the bat. I got to go by a script, right? Um, so tonight we're going to talk about fitness gadgets in general, but the good majority of people that uh, you are doing Eat Perform, a lot of them have a Fitbit, so we'll run over the Fitbit. Um, are you familiar much with like the Vivo Fit? Because that's also one that's pretty popular, and it has what, like a strap, but also uses similar technology to the to the Fitbit? Yeah, I've worked with some people who use it. I'm not, I, I don't have one and I haven't used it myself, but it is somewhat similar. Okay. Yeah, because I know that in the past, the the big downside for most of this stuff was just the, um, the, uh, the Fitbit was nice because it used the skin thing for your heart rate. I think the Vivo Fit uses a heart rate strap, but then uh, Amy Amy Sardonia, there's some people with their hand raised, and I'm not really sure why they're raising their hand. Let's see. Are you going to talk about how you use the iFleet Pro? I just purchased it. Yes, I will actually talk about the iFleet. So that was going to be a little bit of the conversation as well. Um, for those that don't know, or if you're like listening to the podcast or uh, watching on YouTube, basically if you're an Eat Perform member, you are have the ability to ask us questions in real time through chat. So um, sometimes we can actually get um, pretty involved with the chat there, and other times we get um, so involved with the, the things that we're talking about that it's sort of hard to do. But um, what Amy's asking about is the iFleet, which is a um, HRV testing device. They actually have a number of ways that you could do it. And, and I'm going to give April a slow tutorial on it because she's going to be getting one fairly soon now that she's pestered me for one. Um, but she also just earned the right to mail a whole bunch of people iFleet, so that was awesome for her. Um, I'm I'm joking, but um, we we just uh, for the coaches group, we just gave um, what looks to be about 150 of them away, so we could start monitoring people on accumulated stress. So I think it is actually sort of an important thing. But like I said, we'll start with. Uh, the Fitbit and activity trackers in general. So it's sort of interesting because when I wrote my article on on doing the Fitbit wrong and, and subsequently wrote two other articles since then, one on how to do it right and then the other one on um, on your metabolism in your Fitbit. And <laughs> the so one time I went into the the my fitness pal forums and oh my god like I mean I often forget how positive you know uh 
eat to perform is and how, you know, the culture we've developed. Um, I mean, basically, it was just like, who is this idiot and why does he hate Fitbit so much? You know, um, it was pretty funny. But if, if, if you aren't familiar with the, the article, what I say is that um, basically the uh, Fitbit, if you're using it correctly, you would eat to the level of your energy output the good majority of the time. It's kind of a basic concept of eat to perform, but a lot of people didn't think of their Fitbit as their total daily energy expenditure. And what most of these devices, they, they use, you know, um, algorithms and formulas that are pretty similar to um, – the ones that we use on the eperform calculator, which you can find on eperform.com. And uh, the big ones are like the catch McArdle formula and uh, shoot, what's the other one? Um, Harris Benedict. And um, what they're ultimately trying to do. So this is actually a great place to start. What the eperform calculator does, what the Fitbit does, all of these things are trying to estimate your level of activity. They don't really know. You didn't actually burn that many calories. They're just basing it off of formulas and they're trying to get it as close as possible. And so that frustrates some people and they'll say, well, you know, this isn't reliable because it's not giving me accurate information. And my argument to that is, it's much more reliable than zero, right? So if you don't have anything to go off of and you're always just guessing, like one of the things that, that happened with the eat form calculator and, and we, you know, will often estimate people's activity based on the information that they provide us. And, um, you know, they'll say, well, you know, I, I don't really work out all that much. And then come to find out, you know, they're a nurse, um, their level of activity at their job is really high, they're a construction worker, something of this nature. So even something like an extra active or very active setting isn't always correct. And so that's where something like a Fitbit helps get you in the more correct ballpark, right? Now, April is someone that has some level of frustration with the Fitbit and I would say, you know, a lot of a lot of women tend to have a little bit more frustration than the guys. Um, can you talk a little bit about what happens to you without being super negative? <laughs> I'm not negative. It's, it's I'm just telling you, if you get negative, those minds alive. I think the good thing for me is that I had already worked my calories up. Um, you know, so the, you know, obviously for me, it was a reminder that I do, you know, work at a computer. Um, it did make me more aware and make me, you know, take more steps. But in general, it usually averages my burns probably six to 700 calories less than what I eat. So I eat and on average six to 700 calories more every day compared to what, you know, it gave me. So I think. The great example of what you're talking about there is that you knew intrinsically to try and push your calories and you're basing it 
off of staying what relatively weight stable, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so, so what she's ultimately saying to you guys is that, you know, if you continuously push the top in, you'll sort of start to feel out the, the, the differences. And so if the scale's up a little bit, then you go, okay, well, you know, 1200's a little bit much, you know, um, and, you know, sometimes you'll have to play with that a little bit because foods that you eat, you know, if you have an overly carbohydrate day or something like that, um, women respond to different days much differently than men. I know for myself, as an example, um, if I have a relatively low carb day, you know, sometimes I can drop two, three pounds, right? And uh, usually on those days, you know, I might feel a little bit more lethargic. Maybe my muscles dry out a little bit more and it's not as good for workouts. Women tend to hold on to their water a little bit differently than men. And so the, their um, response isn't going to be near as acute. Can you talk a little bit about that, April, and some of your experiences and what you've heard from clients? Um, my weight is, is generally higher after a recovery day or after a day that I reduce my carbs down versus a workout day. The workout days, I bring the carbs back in and my abs pop, pop back out again. You know, I kind of take it as, you know, my body is accustomed to the carbs and, you know, natural stress response when you don't eat as much as you do on the days that you work out. You know, obviously there is a level of, you know, water there. Yeah, I think that uh, for women, it really comes down to sort of sticking with a consistent plan one way or the other. And then you'll start to see, like I said, for men, or at least for me, and, and most of the guys that I talk to are fairly similar where um, they'll get like a direct response. Now, there are instances where the, that's not the case, and that might be a sign that you're metabolically inflexible and your body needs to get used to metabolizing, you know, carbohydrates or fat or whatever it was that you previously weren't eating um, there are some people, as an example, though, that that are overeating. We almost, you know, sometimes don't mention those, but, you know, those people do exist in the wild. Um, and in general, uh, I would say the the paleo people often overeat fats. And once we can sort of get their fats in line, and they get them more accustomed to metabolizing carbohydrates, what they'll often see is that their workouts are a little bit better. Um, what's One of the things that I don't think we get a lot of credit for at Eat to Perform, and, and one of the things that I think that uh, people could be a lot better with, is um, we talk about being both metabolically flexible with carbohydrates, but also with fats. Right. So on the days that you're working out, you're going to be more reliant on carbohydrates. And so you have a strategy that keeps carbohydrates in for that. And then you're going to have days where um, you're not working out and you're going to be reliant mostly on fats those days. And so your carbohydrates come a little bit lower. But the one thing that we don't get a lot of credit for is, you know, people always refer to one of the advantages of paleo or low carb or something like that, that you become fat adapted. 
Well, you also become fat adapted our way as well, right? You're using fats for energy. Um, and you'll often see that, you know, your hunger signaling and stuff all gets benefited by having some strategies. And one of the things that's sort of interesting when you start adding carbohydrates around the days that you're working out, especially if you, let's say you just started Eat to Perform and you're coming from this background that you're going to run all the time and you're going to CrossFit all the time and you're doing all the things. And um, now all of a sudden you come from a background where you weren't eating carbs and then you start loading carbs every single day, but you never have a rest day and you never have a day where you use that fat adaptation part. That's one of the reasons why most people report being fluffy because they don't allow their body to process some of the carbohydrates or they don't use them up. I mean, one of the things, um, you know, for myself, you know, I tend to work out four days a week. Um, on some of my days, like one of, one, of the, one of the days last week, I ended up running 14 miles. Um, on that day, I was certainly not fluffy once I was done. The very next day, um, I was having a hard time staying hydrated enough. And so I actually had to add some carbohydrates, even though it was a rest day, because, you know, I could just feel my body dragging. And part of my, the reason why my body was dragging is because I'm not normally used to running 14 miles. So it's a little bit more of a catch up program. And so when you look at something like my Fitbit number, my Fitbit number, I think was 4,100. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I ate, you know, somewhere 5,000 to 5,500. So you go, well, how were you able to get away with that? And then the next day, you also needed to add carbohydrates. This is one of the things that, that I've been talking a lot about with clients that, that you know, really, uh, I think sort of goes, um, it's sort of a forgotten concept. When you do something that is harder than what you normally do, you need more food. And even in the instance where your Fitbit is telling you, I need 4,000 calories worth of food, but you're still hungry, you're under-recovered, things of that nature, you have to really rely on your body. And that's sort of how April has kind of done some trial and error, right, to figure out that she needs 600 to 700 more calories a day. And I think that, you know, for a lot of folks, they'll be like, hey, look, I'm still hungry. Fitbit says 2,300. I don't get what's going on. Well, we know a couple things. We know Fitbit doesn't record um, weightlifting all that well. It doesn't record some things like rowing and biking all that well. And so there are adjustment figures. I, I think actually, you know, they'll have like formulas that you can add um, based on the fact that, you know, they're trying to estimate how much biking, how much rowing and things of that nature. But you can kind of rely on your own thing. But I think more important than, than that is when you do something like, like I was talking about the running, that's a little bit harder than what you normally do. It's very normal to need extra food. The other thing 
that's also really normal is, you know, when I first started doing CrossFit, um, I was able to get away with eating 3,500 to 4,000 calories. And now if I do CrossFit, I cannot. And the reason why I cannot is because my body has adapted to the, the stimulus and the stress. And so normally you would have to overeat a little bit to deal with, you know, that stress. Um, and when we say stress, we just mean exercise is stressful, dieting is stressful, right? Those are, those are some of the basic ideas. And so one of the ways that you deal with that is food. The other way that you deal with it is stress. The other way that you deal with it is rest days. And so those are all factors that you have to come in. So, you know, while all the people on the My Fitness Pal forums think I was being negative, I wasn't being negative. What I was saying was, is you need to have some level of logic that applies. And, and the problem, what they were really saying, uh, is the problem is they want to believe that if the Fitbit says, you know, um, 2,300 and they eat 1,800, that they'll lose a pound a week and that in 30 weeks they'll be 30 pounds down and that's just not how the body works right and so you have to factor all these things in in the subsequent articles i wrote about how you should do it and 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 basically it's sort of what we talk about with form all the time with wave numbers and performance focused fat loss you know it was sort of funny because people were like oh god he's trying to sell his system i'm like First of all, the the wave method is not a system. It's it's the way that your body naturally would want to work. Your body doesn't want to be dieting all the time. And 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 many of the people that are coming from an overfed background, you know, they they've seen some success. They naturally would see success, right? Because you know they've been overly reliant on carbohydrates or something of that nature. Um, I went through all that, you know, I mean, I, I had really bad behaviors as it relates to food. When I first started off working out, I just tried to work out all the time and maintain my bad behaviors. And then, you know, that sort of worked for a little while. And then eventually I had to start getting a little bit smarter about my food choices and, you know, it's sort of like what we're talking about with all this stuff. You have to have some level of logic that you apply to everything that you're trying to do. Otherwise, you know, you're going to end up being constantly confused. One of the things that I often stress to people, um, you know, in our coaches, in our coaching groups is that you control the switch. You know, and people will often say, well, I don't feel like I control the switch. Well, you need to experiment with various things to get to control the switch. If you just always do what April says or what I say, and you don't provide any, you know, personal experience to it, you're only going to get April and I's experience. And frankly, that's not going to be particularly enlightening for you. We can give you clues to the path that you need to take, but in the end, it does come down to you. And that's why I think, you know, bringing it back to, um, you know, devices, you, know, you have to use these devices with a grain of salt, but they're way better than not using devices. 
Um, I know I covered a lot of ground there, April. Is there anything that you wanted to add? I was just going to say, you had said it in a prior webinar that, you know, these devices are used to get you in the ballpark. You know, they're not 100% accurate. You know, being in the ballpark is better than standing outside the ballpark looking in. At least you have a better idea. You know, and, and I absolutely agree with what you were just saying in regards to, you know, a, basically we, you know, we all, we all use the term me search, you know, it's about me search, you know, not everyone can, you know, not every female can, can be comfortable with eating 375 grams of carbs. You know, it just doesn't, you know, yeah. every, everybody's different, you know, whereas like what you said, you know, you, we can, we can guide you, but there is some level of, you know, me search on, you know, testing the waters out and seeing what makes you feel good and what, you know, allows you to improve. Yeah, I know, like, as an example, Lori Walsh often talks about um, PCOS and how, you know, some people without PCOS can use um, refined sugars and have better responses than people with PCOS. Well, there's probably some people with PCOS that can use refined sugars just fine, but as a general rule, that's kind of a path you would want to try out, right? So if things weren't working for you, you know, and you wanted to limit your refined sugars, you know, I'm not a huge fan of taking anything out of the way that you eat. And um, I just think it sets up real bad for a bad relationship with food. But I think at the same time, we all kind of know, you know, or at least we all should have some idea on what's working best things that we could, you know, use in moderation, that kind of thing, right? Um, I, I was just going to say it's kind of similar to, you know, I, I have questions all the time that ask about, you know, someone recently had a surgery and they had their gallbladder taken out, and I will usually chime in. I had mine taken out 16 years ago at a actually at a younger age, and obviously I've kind of tested out the waters over the years, but, you know, and I always tell them, this is what works for me. You know, I can't eat very high fats. You know, I have to eat moderate level fats. You know, every now and then I can do a higher fat day, but I can't do it every day because my body doesn't metabolize and break down and digest the fats as well. I can't eat a lot of red meat, you know, things like that, and I tell them, you know, this is what's worked for me. You know, you gotta gotta test out the orders and try out, you know, and see how you digest food and how you feel overall. Because I personally don't believe in over relying on supplements, you know, like digestive enzymes and things like that. You know, I don't think you should ever rely on anything like that long term. Yeah, I mean, just having some level of variance is always going to be a plus. One of the things that um, Mark is saying in the um, as a response to what we were saying about, you know, Fitbit, he says that he uses his Fitbit on his ankle when he's cycling and that it records the cycling better than he does on his wrist, which, you know, if you think about what the Fitbit does, it's, it's based on movement and it's going to be based mostly on, you know, the movement of your wrist. And so if you're cycling, um, I'm just trying to think rowing, Pushing, pushing the grocery cart. Yeah. There's depth. <laughs> a little tricky because a lot of what you're doing is, is you know, a lot of the, the pull is coming from your thighs. You know, a lot of people think of it like they're pulling because they make that natural, you know, pull to the chest. But it's really, you're, if you're rowing correctly, it's your thighs that are doing the majority, thighs and legs doing the majority of the work. Um, 
the I guess we'll talk a little bit about this next idea and then we'll sort of move on. But when, you know, we, we talked about performance-focused fat loss of phase. And so if you're not familiar with, you know, eat to form and the wave method, okay, I'll give you the simple gist. The simple idea is that the majority of the time you're not dieting. The difference is, is that with eat to form, you have a plan not dieting. Right, so you're eating an adequate amount of food for what you do, and so let's say that you came in from an overfed background. Let's say you were supposed to eat 3,500 calories a day. You were eating 5,000 calories a day. So we get you set up with your proteins, carbohydrates, and your fats, and you start eating 3,500. And naturally, you're going to to lose some weight, um, possibly lose some fat as a result because you reduced your overall intake. The problem is for a lot of people, when they first start off dieting, they just immediately go to, um, I'm overeating. And they don't always know whether or not they're overeating because you know they might be eating intuitively or whatever. And so they go to an arbitrary number um, that maybe they got online or, or something of this nature, you know, 1,200 comes to mind for females, 1,800 comes to mind for males, okay? Well, if you're a 260-pound dude and you're supposed to be eating 5,000 calories on a day, you could actually uh, eat 4,000 calories and be just fine, assuming that um, you are eating the 5,000 calories a day, you know, but what happens for a lot of people, you know, let's say that you're a guy, you're trying to eat that 1,800, it's really hard to stick to because, you know, your Fitbit says that you're supposed to be at 5,000. I, I just want to stop right there. Like, that should be like a genuine clue for every single person is that if this device is saying 5,000 and you're eating 1,800, what the hell are you trying to accomplish? Right. I mean, you're looking at basically a thirty two hundred calorie. That would be a pound a day. OK, because a, a pound basically equals thirty five hundred calories on a daily basis. Right. So you're thirty two hundred. So you're roughly you should lose seven pounds a week. So then you go, well, yeah, I did lose a lot of weight when I first when I first started. A lot of that was water. Right. A lot of that was inflammation, so you, you can't always count that. So then all of a sudden, you're two weeks in, right? You're eating 1,800. You're starving. You're supposed to be eating 5,000, right? But you're eating 1,800. Now you're sort of stuck here, right? And there's really no place to go. So after, let's say, three, four weeks, you start to plateau. What are you going to do? Start eating 1,600? That's why what we suggest is that first of all you establish where your metabolism would like to be or close so when we start someone off in a dieting phase we we call that the performance focused fat loss phase because what we don't want you doing is just um completely ignoring athleticism right we want you to be able to thrive the good majority of the people that are going to start off dieting, they're going to want to be more active as they start to lose weight in general, right? And having activity is always going to be a plus. It's never going to be a minus. In fact, it's a plus even in instances where you're carrying a little bit more fat, 
right? And so you might as well be eating an adequate amount of food for, you know, for what you're doing. So now all of a sudden, let's say, you know, guy starts off 5,000, uh, he loses 30 pounds, right? And comes to eat to perform, and he says, April, I'm eating 1,800 pounds, 1,800 calories, I lost 30 pounds almost immediately, and now I'm stuck. Can you help me? So what April's going to say to him is, yeah, well, we need to get you eating 5,000 calories again. And he's like, oh, my God, that's going to make me gain a lot of weight. And it is going to make him gain a little bit of weight. And part of the reason why is because he dieted like a moron, right? And so <laughs> like, I can call this fictitious guy a moron, right? Um but there's a lot of people who dieted too aggressively too fast and then they're not going to see a result. So what we're going to try and do is get that person through some level of cycling and some level of consciousness as, as it how's it, how they eat, you know, to get their proteins aligned, their carbohydrates. And so um, we might not have him actually eating 5,000. I mean, we certainly don't want him gaining a lot of weight, but you know, some weight could be expected when you're coming from 1,800 calories. So we're going to gradually walk that person from 1,800, and let's say that we can get him roughly to 4,500. Maybe he gains 15 pounds. So he lost 30 pounds. He's pounds, but he's eating 4,500 calories. He's feeling great in the gym. He's doing awesome, and April says you can either try for the 5,000 or maybe we can test a performance-focused fat loss phase. What I would say the biggest determining factor for someone having a successful you know, dieting period, which is essentially what the performance-focused fat loss phase is, is how long and how well that person recovered from the metabolic damage that they did when they were at 1800. Now I'm trying to use some extreme numbers here, but this works the same way for females, right? There's a good majority of people, you can go to the form calculator, you can put in your level of activity, and it'll give you the basic idea on what you should be eating on a daily basis. If you're supposed to be eating 2,400 and you've been eating 1,200, there's a price to pay for that. And if you've been doing it for the last you know, 35 years, the price is going to be a little bit longer than you might feel comfortable with. But let's face it, you sort of painted yourself into a corner with this 1,200 calorie nonsense. And so we want to normalize your system. What I think is one thing that, that often we don't get enough credit for is all the things that, that change in that person's life from when they were under eating to actually normalizing their situation, whether it be their relationship with their family because they're not hangry all the time or, you know, really, you know, fatigued throughout the day. I mean, there's just so many benefits, right? And so uh, when you look at someone, okay, and so let's say that this guy, let's say that he was – 
265. Okay, so he's 265 pounds. He lost 30 pounds dieting in an unenlightened way. I'm not going to call him a moron again because that's wrong. Um, but uh, the and I I'm being funny, but I I shouldn't I shouldn't say that. That's, that's I didn't not. I didn't take it as you calling him a moron. I I took it as you were calling the action a moron. Yeah, but even even still, it's probably not the best way to do it because it's it makes me it makes it me seem insensitive to someone's plight. And frankly, as someone that was 230 pounds and now weighs 170 pounds. Trust me, I have a lot of sensitivity to that plight, right? So he's now lost 30 pounds, but, he, but he's stuck. He's at 1,800, okay? So we get him back to um, – he's at, at 250. He's a little frustrated, right, because he had lost a lot of weight, but his, his approach wasn't great. And so um, that 250 – now we take him through an eight-week performance-focused fat loss period, and he comes down to 240, which isn't the lowest that he's been at. But in general, what we'll often see is that people in that situation will start to get a little frustrated like they haven't seen a lot of results, right? Because in the other scenario where you just starve yourself, as long as your body will go, you will see a more drastic result on the scale, okay? But oftentimes, that is not fat. You will often dehydrate your muscle. It doesn't end up being a positive, and it's not a long-term solution. So even though this person didn't end up at the 235 that he was normally at, He's actually in a much better situation because if you look at somebody that's 4,500, you know, the numbers that we would probably give that person are in the range of, you know, I would say I'd probably put that person at about 3,500. So he'd be dieting essentially at 3,500 um, and then probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,200 and then 2,800 as the lowest where you would virtually never, probably 2,900, you'd probably never have to go to that number. Um, but when you look at what he was doing, right, at 1,800 calories, and then the good majority of the time he's going to be at a 1,000 calorie deficit at 3,500 calories, he's now gotten used to eating an adequate amount of food, feels better in the gym, even in the times that he's in a deficit. It allows his body to <laughs> – so, someone, someone just said, thanks for calling me an idiot um, but or a moron. Um, but, uh, but you can sort of see that that's a less stressful environment for that person. And then once we start reversing that person out of, you know, the, the eight- to ten-week cycle – they can recover a lot better. And what's interesting about that, I would say that the good majority of people, when they go through their first cycle, it's really almost a learning experience, right? Because there's going to be things that work, things that don't work, and you'll sort of have a little bit of frustration. It's not, 
is not near as as um cut and dry as just starving yourself right you just starve you know if you just cut off your left arm you'll lose 20 pounds right that's sort of what starving yourself does so it's probably a little bit more clear until it's not right <laughs> until you hit that wall and then you're like i don't have any place to go well this guy that went from eating 4500 to 3500 there's room to move there right and so that's part of what we sort of teach people and so really if you think about whenever you've dieted and you've been effective what was really the most effective thing the fact that you weren't eating all that smart in the first place so imagine a scenario where you could actually Plan out the time when you aren't dieting. Would you be better off on the periods where you are actually eating at a deficit? And that's how we get people results. And and what's what's nicest about it is that as people are, you know, you know, eating um, with a better plan when they aren't dieting, and then you know, kind of keeping track of you know what's working and what isn't working. Now, all of a sudden, we can get someone to whatever their optimal results are through trial and error and some level of patience. But if you're always in this, you know, detoxes and flushes and 30-day challenges and stuff like this, you know, um, if you're on your fourth 30-day challenge, 30-day challenges are failing you, right? If you're on your fourth flush, or if you have to join Weight Watchers for the third time, Weight Watchers has failed you, right? The good majority of diets, they rely on your failure. And what's interesting about it is, is that if you took a test and on that test, you missed two questions, you would feel awesome, right? You know, I mean, like if that test had 3,000 questions and you only feel, you know, missed two of them, you your success rate would be awesome. Dieting doesn't work like that, right? So now all of a sudden, you're not doing what we're talking about. Your plan when you weren't dieting, you know, isn't particularly enlightened. And then you just go down as low as possible, as aggressive as possible, you don't really figure out what the problem is. We actually allow you to kind of pick apart the pieces. There is no wrong or right. There is only, you know, um, could it be better? And will we eventually get there, right? And so that's, that's a big part of the equation. The other thing that really, I think, kind of gets dismissed and shouldn't is, the period where he went from 1800 to 4500 okay so a lot of people will gain you know like i said you know in that situation he gained 15 pounds did he gain 15 pounds of fat it sort of depends on how much work he was able to do see what happens for a lot of people you know if you were supposed to be eating 5000 calories and you're eating 1800 calories there's a severe deficit going on. And when a person can address those deficiencies, they'll often gain muscle in that process. And so let's say that in the process of gaining, you know, 
15 pounds, he was able to, you know, rehydrate his muscles, you know, do more work as a result and gain nine pounds of muscle and then six pounds of fat. The situation is really quite awesome, right? And so when we start to go into a performance focused fat loss, he's not only addressed fat loss, you know, while getting an adequate amount of calories, but he's also addressing fat loss with the upcoming deficit. Was that clear, April, you think? I think it was clear. And yeah. I think and I think one of the, the main things that I just wanted to add is when you're referencing his eighteen hundred plan versus the forty five hundred plan, it's 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 just more sustainable. It's sustainability overall. You know, the eighteen hundred plan, yes, he may have lost thirty pounds, you know, fairly quickly, but as soon as he goes on vacation or as soon as he goes back to somewhat of a normal life, you know, of actually, you know, socializing with his friends or his wife or whatever, you know, it's, it's just not sustainable. He'll immediately see, you know, a, a gain on the scale. And then, you know, of course it's, you know, let me do a flush or, you know, like what you said, a flush cleanse, whatever, you know, to get that back off. And it's just a vicious cycle that, you know, repeats itself over and over. Whereas like what you said, the 4,500, you know, you have from the, from my experience, the longer that he spent at the 4,500, the more successful he'll be dieting on the 3,500. Um, but 3,500 is literally close to double, you know, the, the bad plan that he was on before that just isn't sustainable. You know, who would not want to diet, you know, on double the amount of food? Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that, that often gets talked about with E-Perform members um, is how their relationship with food changes, right? Imagine a scenario where you're trying to deny yourself that much food that quickly. And, and that sounds extreme, right? I mean, it sounds like, you know, oh gosh, you know, you're using the most extreme example. I'm just saying like, if you're a male, you're supposed to be eating, you know, a significant amount of calories. You could make the same case. If, if you're a female, you're supposed to be eating 2,400, but you're eating 12 there's not that big of a difference between the two scenarios. So both are very extreme. So the minute you cuddle up to the extremes, now all of a sudden you're sort of run into this bad relationship with food. And so I think that when you look at the Fitbit from the standpoint of this is the amount of food that I should be eating or potentially more, right? Then it sets up a better relationship with food and it gives you a more direct path on how to get long-term success with the Fitbit, right? If you, you know, were never, you know, you never did dieting before, you, you just ate really poorly, you know, it was McDonald's three times a day, right off the bat, having the Fitbit, being more conscious of how much you're eating compared to what you're doing, that's going to help a lot. I'm just telling you, as you get more better, <laughs> not as you get more better, but as your approach becomes more refined, you have to have a better approach. You can't just always go down, down, down. And that's what we're talking about. And that's how you can use these types of fitness devices to, you know, better, to get the better response that makes more sense and that you don't end up hating food as a result, right? So 
The other device is a little bit more advanced. Um, we'll we'll talk about that because you know, like I said, if you're in the uh, group coaching program with Eat to Perform, you just got this for free. And so uh, the reason why we did it is because, uh, well, one, we appreciate all of our group coaching clients, and we want to make sure that they're getting tools that they need for success. Um, but we also want them to be more conscious of stress. And so what the iFleet does is it measures your heart rate variability. And frankly, I think heart rate variability within the next five to 10 years is going to be um, an emerging thing as it relates to how you're recovering and adjusting to exercise. And so what we'll often see is that the better athletes with the better approach tend to get the best results, right? So if you go to, let's say that you work out at a gym um, and you look around to that gym, the people with the best physiques tend to be the people that can do the most work, right? And they're the better athletes. And so what HRV will do, you know, part of it's based on your resting heart rate, okay? Um, it's sort of interesting though, because I've definitely done it where my resting heart rate is fairly low, but my HRV is higher. Um, what essentially, it, it works similar to like an EKG, um, and so, you know, when you're EKG, you get the, like the response and you sort of want it all to be the same, but then when it kind of varies, right, that is sort of showing how your body is recovering from, um, your workouts. And so when that variability is lower, um, like for instance, on the iFleet, um, my wife, as an example, the other day, I think she had an 84 and it was red for her. And so I was like, wow, you're an 84 because mine's normally, you know, kind of in that 83 to 85 range. And then here she is 84 in red. Then, you know, she took a rest day and she was at a hundred and she was green. So basically the way that the devices work is red is bad. You're under recovered orange is take it easy, and then green is you're good to go. Now, I have gotten greens, you know, the day after like long runs. So there are, you know, similar to the Fitbit, you have to take into consideration how your body truly feels. And so as an example, um, my body felt fairly recovered. I'd say for myself that it really is sort of two days after that I feel it the most. And that was somewhat reflected in my HRV. I have to say, you know, I used the Omega Wave three years ago and that changed the way that I thought about working out. And um, so much so that I felt like I got into like a really good groove and then now that I've started to change the way that my training is, and I've been doing this training, 
you know, close to a year, maybe a, a year and a few months. Um, but I've started to get more into like long endurance. I wanted to see how my body was recovering. And what I've seen in general is that as I have worked my long endurance up higher, my athleticism or my HRV number is sort of moving in the right direction, right? It's going from, you know, 76 to, you know, 81 to 82, 83, now to 85. And then my, my resting heart rate is actually going lower. And I was talking to some friends of mine who are runners and they talked about your resting heart rate and having your resting heart rate so low without any resistance training that it actually can sort of harm your, um, you know, the linings in your arteries and things of this nature. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why a lot of runners are moving to more resistance training, more weightlifting, more squats and stuff like this. And so I was like, you know, saying to my friend, I'm like, trust me, dude, I've got the weight thing covered it's the the running part that i'm still working on but i do think that runners would largely benefit from having more resistance training and so just having a low resting heart rate isn't going to be great for your recovery and i think that's what a lot of our runners are going to see you know is that the more running that they're doing they'd be better off being a lot more conscious of their rest days right and so, um, so that's something to sort of keep in mind as we're sort of running through this. It's kind of interesting because, you know, we had um, Jolaine um, Undershoot. You know, she's one of our CrossFit Games athletes. Um, she has one. And uh, Jolaine's had a lot of greens. And so this is something that I really wanted to talk about. And I've talked about privately with, with Jolaine, but I've had this conversation with other people. The um, and I think I was having this with Ben um, in the group as well, where people will say to me, "My HRV's in the green all the time. Why am I not progressing?" The you don't really always want your HRV in the green because what that's saying is is that you're not stressing out your system enough. For your body to adapt to that stress, right? So you want some oranges, you want some reds, and then you want to have a rest day so you get what's referred to in the exercise and physiology world as super compensation. So if you've ever done Windler, as an example, and you know, you go through your three-week cycle, and uh, you know, if you looked at your HRV, maybe you might be in the red. On the fourth week, as most people know, you're supposed to deload. And what a deload does is it naturally allows you to supercompensate. So then now you're better at the lifts that you were working on. So in theory, you've used the stress from those three weeks, you've now rested, you've adapted to that stress, and you're stronger as you keep going. And so you constantly deload. Um, in the exercise physiology world, it's called periodization. And you periodize your training so you can adapt to that training and get better as you go.
right? And so the concept is super compensation. So do you want to always be green? No, you want to have some reds. You want to get to the point where you have actually stressed out your system and then recovered enough so you're, um, you're, you're getting better as an athlete. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I always make a, a, the suggestion that whatever it is you sh you're doing, you should have some level of strength training, you should have some level of endurance, and then you should have some level of muscle building. You should have all three of those buckets addressed. And I would argue that um, there could be, you know, some use for a high intensity interval training there, you know, for CrossFitters as an example, um, you know, having CrossFit in those buckets, if that's, you know, going to be important to you, you're going to want to keep those in. Anytime you leave one thing out of the bucket, it's going to naturally get worse. And so is that the best way to get to be the best CrossFitter or the best power lifter or the best long endurance runner? No, it's not. But as you train for different, you know, stimulus, you can then up your intensity to one thing. So for instance, if you're going to do a CrossFit competition, you can now move more towards CrossFit you, if you wanted to do like a marathon, you can move more towards long endurance. If you want to do powerlifting, you could do that. And what's sort of interesting about it is that it's very similar to the way that um, Louis Simmons does things with, uh, you know, Westside Barbell Club. And what Westside Barbell Club does is they, you know, are addressing weaknesses in different types of ways and so when you look at all of this combined you become a better athlete now I will say like in their instance you know they're they're trying to hit muscles differently so they get stronger as a result right so they're they're not, you know I mean they're certainly not running a marathon because you know a lot of them will have difficulty tying their shoes if you've ever, um, if you ever want to know anything about this, that I think is really, really interesting, um, AJ Roberts has detailed, you know, uh, you know, going from one of the strongest people on the planet to really trying to regain some level of fitness and 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 making a case for for both sides, right? Like you know, pursuing strength, but then eventually pursuing. Um, fitness and a smarter approach as it relates to um, overall health. So I think um, we covered most of it. Is there anything that, that you can think of off the top of your head? I mean, obviously, I mean, the one big advantage that I think that a lot of people don't think about is that April, myself, Caitlin, I mean, they're, they're, I would say virtually every eat form coach benefits the most from the group coaching where I think right now we have 250 to 300 clients in there and you know we always welcome more people that want a more focused approach right but I would say that the broader group of you know 25 to 50,000 benefits the most 
from those 300 people. Wouldn't you say that, April? Absolutely. I absolutely agree. Um, so in that respect, are there any things that you can think of that come up on a daily basis that we, we left out? Um, I would say in general, touching back on what you were saying, um, you know, the, the whole purpose, like Windler with the deload week, um, you know, I see this all the time, you know, the, those things are, are, you know, purposely programmed in there. Like what you said, the, the super compensation to, it allows some recovery on your body. You know, I've talked to people before who had not taken a deload week or had not taken, you know, more than one day off, you know, every two weeks for six months, you know, and you've touched on this so many times of, you know, you're always performing at 60%. You're never going to improve when you're constantly at 60%. And I think the, the HRVs are good in, in regards to not only is it showing your recovery, but it's also all the other factors that affect that, like your sleep or are you eating enough or your life stress, you know, just things like that, you know, cause you know, I've worked with, you know, people in the coaching group who their diet is perfect. You know, they're eating an adequate amount. They, they, they have a great training setup and their sleep is crap. You know, their sleep is crap and it will, you know, bring you down quick, you know, quick, like, you know, so just little things, you know, and with the coaching program, you know, you, you have that one-on-one -on -one interaction, you know, with your, with your coach and, and a team, just a whole group of coaches, but you not only can talk about, you know, that you can talk about your training or, you know, you know, what's your favorite workout pants or, you know, doesn't really matter. <laughs> Share recipes, you know. I mean, I think that the one thing that people often, you know, say to us is it's sort of like having a consultant on the way that I should eat, the way that I should sleep, the way that I, you know, should really just do about anything. And so when you go, you know, how much would you pay for the ability to have, you know, up to, you know, PhD level researchers, you know, working with you as it relates to your health, I think that's what people see the real value in it. So if you, if you've not seen it, you know, and you don't really know, then it's sort of difficult to explain to you how useful it is. But then, you know, we have had a lot of people uh, throw out, you know, various testimonials and talk a little bit about, you know, what it's able to do. And I would say that, you know, not everybody, you know, they don't walk away like totally figuring it out within weeks or even months. But knowing that the resources and support is there, I think is, is something that's, that's really you know, super important to people. And, and, and something like this, where we introduce heart rate variability, I guarantee you of the 300 people that, you know, are in that, in, in the coaches groups, um, and even, 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 you know, the gym owners that are in like the, our, you know, our, our, our coaches course, which starts next week, these people don't know about heart rate variability. They don't know the value. And so if you look at a 28-year-old athlete, right, that's coming into your gym, and that person has more recovery ability. So maybe that person can get away with, you know, working out five days a week and then two days off. But then you have another athlete that's 67 
that can really only work two days a week. And that person wants to be able to work out at 100% so they get as good a response as a 65-year-old person can. That's where heart, something like heart rate variability and really if you look at what the iPhones bring into the table and if you look at what smartphones in general are doing, it's really changing the landscape for how we look at our health. And, you know, one of my friends, he owns a, um, a, a gym here in Highland Park, uh, Minnesota, and um, which is a, is a part of St. Paul. It's kind of a suburb of St. Paul. Um, but he was going to be a doctor. And he decided to open up his own gym and, 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 you know, his whole family was sort of bummed because they were all doctors. And he's like, look, you know, you guys are always reacting to try and get people healthy. He's like, I want to be on the front end. And so what I think happens as gym owners and even people that are, you know, uh, just trying to get lean we get too focused on, you know, as a gym owner, you might be too focused on just keeping the doors open, right? Um, as a regular person, you get too focused on, you know, staying lean um, or getting abs, right? But in both scenarios, whether it be the gym owner or the regular person, it's really that, that forest view that ends up being the best approach and ultimately lands you with the best approach as it relates to your health. Because if you look at bodybuilders um, and these types of folks that are lean for a couple days, you know, those folks, you know, aren't always lean, you know, weeks or months out. And you would have to go, you know, a, a lot of people look at those physiques and go, man, I'd really like to look like that. <coughs> I would argue <coughs> that you'd be better off taking a long-term sustainable approach to your health that you will land you in the approximate realm of those looks. And that will make you feel better. You lead an adequate amount. You're not dieting all the time. You don't hate yourself. Um, there's just a lot of pluses to it. And so if you're a gym owner, as an example, and you're trying to get clients' results, really when you look at breaking things down with heart rate variability or with a Fitbit, none of these things are challenges to what you're doing. Clients aren't counting on you to solve all of their problems. What they do want, though, is they want to know that you have an understanding of the plan. And so the more things that you can bring to the table, like, like you know, better understanding of how Fitbit really works, um, any activity tracker really, better understanding of heart rate variability, and any of these new, like especially with body fat testing as an example, you know, I've always encouraged gyms to have a body fat testing unit in their facility. Um, I just think that, you know, when you look at what clients really want, they're, they're, in it for fat loss, right? Even if they're enjoying themselves and they like the workouts and stuff like this, you're trying to get them a long-term sustainable result. And so the more things that you can get a, a number on, we can start to like, you know, measure the result. And the more we can measure, 
the the better we can aim at the target. So I appreciate everybody being here. We'll end on that note. I hope my squeaky chair isn't coming out too much. I'm going to have to figure out what the hell WD-40 does and, and, and try and make that work for me. So um, do you want to say goodbye to everyone? Good night, everyone. All right, and we'll see you guys next week. Talk to you later.